Second Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. All scripture is profitable for that stuff, not just the passages that make us feel good, not just the passages that look nice on quilts in the living room, not just the passages that get shared a lot on social media. And all scripture being breathed out by God includes the passages and includes the books that you're tempted to ignore in your reading and that I'm tempted to ignore in my preaching. For example, a book like Nahum. Raise your hand if you've done any significant reading of Nahum in the last year. There you go. Proves my point for me. Well, why do we do that? Why do we ignore books like Nahum? Well, sometimes books like these, or really the Old Testament prophets altogether, sometimes they give us a look at God that isn't always as warm and fuzzy as we typically like to hear. Thus, we stick to passages that focus on the aspects of God's character that we do like. Well, the problem with that is that it's kind of like having a marriage where you only share a bedroom with your spouse when you're in a good mood. Needless to say, that's not a very healthy marriage. It's not a very healthy situation. Well, a book like Nahum challenges us to do some deeper reading in the pages of Scripture and do some deeper reading in the pages of history to really understand what God is up to. And to be honest, that sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? Reading deeply into a book like Nahum, having to go back to Second Kings, and then what does it say in Second Chronicles? Sometimes those things don't always match up perfectly at first glance. That sounds like a lot of work. So we'd rather prefer to just look at passages that sound pithy, that sound encouraging, that are often taken out of context Passages that we like about God that make us feel good, but lack a whole lot of depth, because they're not very challenging. But one of the most consistent themes of the Old Testament, and the book of Nahum itself, is that God often uses unexpected means to accomplish his purposes. Likewise, you may think to yourself that Nahum can't possibly have a lot to say to you. But my prayer this morning is that God would use Nahum to challenge and encourage and convict us. So as we start this series this morning, let's pray together that God will do just that. That we can read Nahum and that we will be profited for it because all of Scripture is God-breathed. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with, all the ways that you provide for us, all the ways that you care for us. Father, as we just took communion and just took an offering, thank you for your son's broken body, his shed blood on the cross. Thank you for the generosity of the people of this church that we can keep doing ministry here and coming up on 25 years of ministry. Thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness to this church. Father, be with us this morning as we open your word even a part of your word that we often neglect, I pray that you would use it to work in our hearts and work on our minds and give us a better understanding of who you are and who we are and how the world works and how the world is really meant to work, how you would like to see the world work. And Father, as we read a book that at times can be dark, at times can be challenging, at times can be very sobering, 
I pray that it would point our eyes forward to the return of your son, Jesus, that we would look forward to that day, that we would anxiously wait that day, that we would await it with confidence and that we would await it with joy and that you would give us endurance to continue serving and continue loving and continue seeking you even as we wait. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. Nahum is a small book, and again, we don't often spend time in it, so you're going to find it after the big prophets. It's after Isaiah, after Jeremiah, after Ezekiel. It's very close to the book of Micah, if you need help finding Nahum. And of course, feel free to follow along in the Bibles that we provide, and if you don't own a Bible, take it home with you. So, as you turn to Nahum chapter 1, verse 1, A little bit of background to kind of set the stage for our book. So, after King Solomon, Solomon as in the son of King David, after King Solomon died, the nation of Israel fell into complete and utter disarray. The nation broke into two separate kingdoms. You had the kingdom of the north, which still kept the name Israel, and you had the kingdom of the south, which then went by the name of Judah, as in the tribe of Judah. Now, each one of these kingdoms had its own separate king. Some of those kings were good. Some of those kings were bad. Sometimes those kings would work together on good terms, and sometimes they didn't. But as time wore on, wicked kings who did not know God became the norm in both the north and the south, Israel and Judah. And as leadership goes, so goes the nation meaning that a majority of God's people became quite comfortable with idolatry, injustice, rebellion, all kinds of wickedness. Now, in the midst of all this, God's people were geographically sandwiched between two major superpowers bent on world domination. The first one was Egypt. They're still around. And then, of course, there's Assyria. The political landscape was volatile. God's people had mostly abandoned him. And if you put those two things together, you have a recipe for disaster. Eventually, things are going to come to a head. And when that happens, it's not going to be very pretty. But that's exactly what happens in 722 B.C. That's when the northern kingdom, Israel, falls to that empire, Assyria. Now, this falling wasn't just chance. It wasn't politics. It wasn't about military strength. God was actually behind this whole thing. We see why it happened in a heartbreaking passage in 2 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, And had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They did secretly. Can you really keep a secret from God? Well, the answer is no. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. 
And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. You become like what you worship. If you go after false idols, you become false, according to Second Kings. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So in spite of God's repeated warnings and pleas, Israel continued to rebel. And eventually God judged them for it, specifically in the form of Assyria. But again, what about the southern kingdom? What about Judah? Well, for now, by the grace of God alone, Judah remains. They're still free. But that doesn't mean that all is well in Judah. They may not have suffered the same fate as Israel in the north, but they're still suffering very much as well. Assyria is clearly in charge. They're breathing down Judah's neck. Thus, it would be wise for them to stay on Assyria's good side, right? In 701 BC, Assyria attempted to take Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. But it was only by the grace of God again that Assyria failed and that Judah lived to tell the tale. But then a king by the name of Manasseh takes the throne in Judah. Manasseh is shockingly wicked. He is a new level of wicked over against every king before him. Manasseh unashamedly worships idols. He's known for offering his own children as sacrifices to false gods. But eventually, even Manasseh repents of his sin. Even Manasseh tries to maybe stand up to big bad Assyria right when they seem like they're on top. And around this same time, a prophet emerges. Nobody had ever really heard of him before, but his name is Nahum. Again, Assyria is on top of the world. God's people are oppressed by their enemies, seemingly forgotten by God himself with no end in sight. And on top of that, the last prophet they'd heard from was Isaiah, potentially decades earlier. So the question on everyone's mind back then when Nahum emerges is what in the world does this guy have to say to us? And the question on our mind this morning is what does he have to say to us in 2016? So let's start reading Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. 
the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Excuse me. So, we start out, and God gives a vision to a prophet. Sounds simple enough, right? Well, specifically, this vision concerns Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. Now, at this time, Nineveh is the greatest city and the greatest empire in the entire world. But Nineveh got there by bloodshed. The Assyrians were notorious for their brutality towards their enemies. We get just a tiny glimpse of this in a work of art that was commissioned by a king of Assyria not long before Nahum. The king writes this. Dear diary. I'm just kidding. He doesn't say dear diary. But he does say this. I built a pillar over his city gate, and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar, and some upon the pillar on stakes I impaled, and others I fixed to stakes round about the pillar. Many within the border of my own land I flayed, and I spread their skins upon the walls. And I cut off the limbs of the high officers, of the high royal officers who had rebelled. Many captives from among them I burned with fire, but many I captured alive. From some I cut off their hands and their fingers. From others I cut off their noses and their ears. And the eyes of many men I put out. I made one heap of the living and another of the heads. And I bound their heads to vines round about the city. Their young men and maidens I burned in the fire. Charming, isn't he? He's a good writer. Give him that. So, that's what we're dealing with here. That's the kind of people that we're talking about. This is the kind of wickedness that has run rampant in the most powerful empire in the entire world. Nineveh specifically. So while this city was powerful, while it was the crown jewel of the most powerful empire on all the earth at this time, their wickedness is also unmatched. And that passage makes it very clear. And so according to Nahum, God has finally had enough of Assyria doing things like this. God has finally had enough of their violence and their rebellion and their idolatry. And according to Nahum, judgment is coming from God himself. Look at Nahum chapter 1 verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge with him. 
But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandments about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Strong words, huh? We also see strong words used to describe God by the prophet Nahum. Look at the words that Nahum uses to describe God. Words like jealous, avenging, wrathful. Think about those words. Those words don't always have very positive connotations, do they? But let's look at those words one by one. First word, jealous. Is there such a thing as an appropriate and acceptable, even godly form of jealousy? Well, according to Nahum, yes, there is such a thing as that. God is jealous for his people. He is jealous for his creation. He is jealous for his glory. Now, jealousy is not the same thing as envy. God is not envious as though he wants something that doesn't actually belong to him. God is jealous for these things because they are rightfully his in the first place. And it is injustice when God does not get these things. So God is jealous. The next word, avenging. Well, this one may be a little tougher for us than jealous, isn't it? Well, the point is that God does not let sin go unpunished. He put it in that passage as God will by no means clear the guilty. Now, we hear that and we think, yeah, that's just one of those Old Testament things, right? God's a little bit rougher back then, right? Well, not exactly. After all, where do you see the avenging God most clearly other than the cross? That sin will not go unpunished. That God will by no means clear the guilty. In fact, he's so committed to that that he's even willing to send his son to a cross for it. And the good news about worshiping a God who avenges, well, that means that we don't have to. The good news is that we have a God whose job is to punish sin. We have a God whose job is to judge. Thus, we are free to love our enemies. We are free to pray for those who persecute us. We don't have to judge the wicked. God takes care of that. So we love, we serve, we pray for our enemies, those who persecute us, knowing that one day God will do what is good and just and right. And we trust him when that day comes. And that third word, wrathful. Well, again, we don't like that word very much either. But we see it on the cross. 
God the Father subjected his own Son to his wrath. And Jesus the Son, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, voluntarily subjected himself to God's wrath for you and for me. In the Old Covenant, someone had to pay for sin, and that someone was either the sinner himself or some animal sacrificed on an altar over and over and over again. But in the New Covenant, ushered in by Christ, sinners can become sons of God because Christ offered himself once and for all, a great high priest, an all-sufficient sacrifice for sin, taking the wrath of God that we deserved. Jealous, avenging, wrathful. Those aren't the attributes of God that we focus on most commonly, right? But again, we want a complete picture of who God is. Not just the parts of him that meet our imperfect standards. Not just the parts of God that make us feel good. But there's actually more to God than just those three words. And what Nahum continues to say is very important. So, for example, Nahum also describes God as slow to anger. Slow to anger. Now, that's important because those words that we just talked about, specifically avenging and wrathful, Those words make us picture someone flying off the handle in a fit of uncontrolled rage, don't they? When we hear words like avenging and wrathful, we picture the spouse who just discovered an affair and responds in violence. We picture the disgruntled former employee returning to work to get their revenge on the person who fired them. When we hear wrathful and avenging, We picture the bullied teenager who's finally going to make everyone regret laughing at them. Again, we picture people who have uncontrolled rage flying off the handle. But God, according to Nahum, is slow to anger. His vengeance and his wrath are not blind, with no account for collateral damage. God's vengeance and wrath are balanced perfectly by the rest of his character. Love. Patience, mercy, justice, power, wisdom. So even when we read a book like this, with a tough message of God acting against the city of Nineveh in jealousy, vengeance, wrath, and judgment, even in a passage like this, we don't have to question whether or not what God is doing is good. We don't have to wonder if what God is doing is right. Because even in moments of judgment, like in the book of Nahum, we keep in mind that God is the ultimate good and that God is perfect in righteousness. He's slow to anger. And then Nahum describes God as powerful. That's the understatement of the century, isn't it? Especially in the book of Nahum. He describes God as powerful. So powerful, in fact, that creation even submits to God. Look at all this vivid imagery that Nahum uses in verses 2 through 14. Clouds, seas, rivers, trees, mountains, hills, rocks, all the earth and all the heavens submit to the God who created them because he is powerful. Nahum makes it clear that no people, no nation, no kingdom, no empire, no military can stand up to God. Israel can't, Judah can't, Assyria can't, 
Not even Egypt can. None of those people can oppose God and win in the end. That's why Nahum says with boldness that God will dig the graves of even the most powerful kings. Because compared to him, they have nothing. They have no power. They have no strength compared to God. Now, it all sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? All this talk of God's judgment. Nahum's name actually means comforter in the original language, but this image of God isn't exactly comfortable for everybody, is it? But here's the thing. Even Nahum, who some call the tragic poet, is his nickname. Even Nahum says that there's more to God than just jealousy, just vengeance, just wrath or anger or power. There's more to God than just that. And we saw a glimpse of that in verse 7. Read that verse again. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. What a beautiful passage. Right in the middle of all this talk of judgment, all this talk of punishment, there's that beautiful verse. While God is a just judge, and while God will punish idolatry and rebellion and injustice, he will by no means clear the guilty, we also worship a God who loves those who take refuge in him. And the beauty of this that we'll see in a few weeks is that even Assyrians can take refuge in God. In the book of Jonah, God shows that he's even willing to forgive these wicked Assyrians, the Assyrians living in Nineveh, those who repent of their sin and turn to him for refuge. God will forgive them. Because while God is jealous and avenging and wrathful, God is also gracious even to Assyrians. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you think that you're somehow beyond saving, that you're somehow beyond forgiveness, you're somehow beyond repentance, that, yeah, sure, maybe the other people around here, maybe they've sinned too, but they haven't sinned like I have, you're not beyond forgiveness. You're not beyond repentance. How? Why? Well, look at Nahum chapter 1. Verse 15, the last verse of the chapter. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The reason that you can find forgiveness and reconciliation with God is because God has promised deliverance. And God has come through on deliverance. Babylon would eventually take over Jerusalem once Assyria fell. So when God in this passage's final promise, excuse me, when God promises final deliverance for his people in this passage, he has to be referring to something different, right? He has to be referring to something further in the future than Assyria or Babylon, or 722 B.C., or 586 B.C. He's looking much further down the road. And Paul hits on it in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. We read there, 
How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written in Nahum chapter 1 verse 15, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul quotes this passage talking about none other than Jesus himself. The reason that you're not beyond forgiveness, the reason that you're not beyond repentance, is because Jesus died for people exactly like you. You might think you're the worst. You might think that you can't possibly be forgiven. But you can be forgiven. Because the good news has been preached. Because Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ has been raised. And Christ will return. That's the good news that we preach from the mountaintops. And that's why you can be forgiven. People exactly like you and exactly like me. You can find forgiveness if you take refuge in Christ. God loves those who take refuge in him. All this talk of God's judgment doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be intimidating. Because Christ died on the cross. We see John say it in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18 of 1 John. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. John makes it clear that the day of judgment does not have to be scary for those who are in Christ. That when the day of judgment comes, as scary as Nahum describes it for the people of Assyria, those today who take refuge in Christ can help look at it with confidence, can look at it with joy. We don't have to fear the day of judgment, not because we're good enough. Not because we're not as bad as those Assyrians were way back when, but because Christ died on the cross for us. So if you wanted to sum up Nahum's message, you could sum it up like this. Nineveh and all of Assyria will have to face God's judgment. That's his message in chapter 1. Now that message would have sounded ridiculous to the Assyrians. They were on top of the world, right? There were no signs whatsoever that they ever could or ever would fall. They convinced themselves that not even God could take them down. Not Assyria. Well, that attitude of invincibility, that attitude that you're somehow exempt from God's judgment, that is often the biggest cause of wickedness and sin running rampant. The Israelites repeatedly fell into sin because they convinced themselves that God would never punish them. They convinced themselves that God didn't actually see their wickedness, that God doesn't have the guts to do anything. We see that attitude in Psalm 10. Heartbreaking psalm, but a psalm that is all too relevant. Look at just a few of these verses in Psalm 10. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Verse 6, 
He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Again, this attitude over and over again that God won't judge, that God won't punish sin. But then look at verses 14 and 15. But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. My fear is that when we neglect aspects of God's character, like jealousy, like vengeance, like wrath, like power, like his role as judge, when we ignore books like Nahum because they say things about God that might rub us the wrong way, when we have this attitude that, well, God loves me, he's gracious, Surely he would never judge me. His grace, the cross, that's just a free ticket for me to do whatever I want, right? That's a perilous attitude to have. Paul encounters the same attitude amongst some Christians in his churches in the New Testament. They say things like, you know, let's just keep on sinning, that God's grace may abound. If God is gracious, then that's license for us to live it up, right? Well, Paul says, no, may it never be your attitude. And if that is your attitude towards God and his grace, perhaps you should reconsider whether you ever knew God at all. My fear is that if we forget God's role as judge, we could end up looking like real Assyrians. Anybody get that joke? Real Assyrians? <laughs> Nahum is a perfect example of what we call the prophetic voice. The prophetic voice. If you describe someone as having a prophetic voice, that means that person is willing to say things that sound ridiculous, but are nonetheless true. A person with a prophetic voice is willing to say the things that need to be said when no one else has the guts to say them. So as we leave here this morning, maybe the most prophetic thing that we can do today is live like there's a God who actually takes sin seriously. So seriously, in fact, that he would send his son to a cross over it. Maybe the most prophetic thing that you can say today is that those who do not take refuge in Christ will be judged for their sin. You know, for a guy like Nahum, some small-town prophet in the middle of nowhere. Saying stuff like this is dangerous. Assyrian kings probably don't like prophets going around saying that God is digging their grave. That's not a way to make friends of your captors. But Nahum said what God told him to say, no matter how risky it may have been. So my prayer is that we would be willing to stick our necks out there and say what God has told us to say, that, of course, being the gospel, that there is a God up there, and that God is not us, that that God is righteous, and that God is judge, 
that we as people are sinful and deserve judgment. But God provided a Savior. God provided a Lord who took the judgment for us. I pray that we would say that boldly, that we would say that confidently, that we would look to the day of judgment not with fear, but with confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in Christ. And I pray that we would proclaim the gospel, that we would have that prophetic voice in our generation. Because how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And the good news for our world today is that Christ has lived. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will return. It's our job to go out and proclaim it. To be those feet on the mountains proclaiming the good news. That God is judge, but that God is also gracious. So gracious that he would even give up his own son. That you might be forgiven. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to a book like Nahum and... We don't always know what to make of it. We don't always know what to take out of it. Don't always know where to go with it and what to do with it and how it could possibly apply to our lives. But sometimes it's not about finding some concrete stuff for us to do, finding some some kind of clear next steps for us to take or another thing to add to the to-do list or another discipline to practice or anything like that. Sometimes we come to your word and we simply learn more about you. And we're reminded of who you are and who we are. And Nahum reminds us that you are judge. But the good news is that you are righteous and that you are good and that you are gracious. That you will by no means clear the guilty. And Father, that's why you provided your son. Because sin must be punished. And yet you and your grace offer us a way out. Father, we love you. We praise you. Be with us in the weeks ahead as we read the book of Nahum, as we read the book of Jonah. I pray that you would give us a sense of humility, a sense of self-awareness as we discover more about you and discover more about who we are. And I pray that your word and your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts and at work in our minds to elicit the proper response to a passage like this, to a book like this, that you are God and that we are not. And Father, I pray that as we leave this place again, that we would be those people who deliver the message of good news. I pray that we would deliver the gospel clearly, faithfully, but that you and your Holy Spirit would bring about the effectiveness that that we can't bring about. We can't change hearts, we can't change minds, but you can. So, Father, I pray that you would do that as we proclaim the gospel, as we leave this place. We love you, we praise you, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.